Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Please join my email list for updates or help support the show financially at ariarmstrong.com. Our guest today is Pamela Clare, a romance fiction writer who has authored numerous novels for her Colorado High Country series, iTeam series, and more. After she earned her degree in classics, she worked as an award-winning investigative journalist in Colorado before turning her attention full-time to romance fiction. Welcome to the show, Pam. Hi, thanks for having me. We've actually known each other for quite a few years, though it's been a while since we've chatted. Yes, we have known each other for a long time, and you played a pivotal role in one particular issue in my life where you challenged my attitudes on firearms and completely changed them. And I just got to give you props for that. Yeah, that's still surprising, but we'll we'll talk about that. Maybe we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, I just wanted to make a note for my audience because this topic is a little bit different for for my show, but there are some reasons why I thought it'd be interesting. First is the romance fiction genre is huge. I did not realize this until I looked at the stats, but it's some say a billion dollar industry. According to Statista, in 2018, romance sold 9.18 million books in the United States, which was second only to suspense thriller, which is just a few more, over 10 million. By contrast, science fiction sold only 2.68 million books. Yes. So if you want to know about the culture, I mean, romance fiction is a big part of it that a lot of people are just, just kind of tune out. Yes, absolutely. But the other thing is that we can get into later, the Romance Writers of America organization is in the midst of a major crisis. I thought it'd be nice to have somebody kind of walk us through some of that. And third, surprising to myself, I read most of Pamela Clare's Colorado High Country series, and I really enjoyed the stories. So I thought maybe some people who have never given this genre a try might want to do that. So let's start with the softball question. How and why did you become a romance fiction writer? When I was a teenager, I started reading romance And I really enjoyed the adventure component of it. Back then, historical romance uh, was really the the in genre at the time. And uh, I didn't always understand what was going on (laughs) in the stories, but I really loved them. And I thought, one day I'm going to write those. And as I got older, I really came to appreciate the feminist nature of these stories And that word feminist comes with a lot of baggage these days. But what I mean by that is the self-realization of the heroines in these stories. These heroines uh, find what they're looking for in life and they insist on it. Uh, And so these books focus on uh, the desires of the heroine. And I don't just mean that in a sexual way, um, but also that. uh, And they focus on heroines fighting for what they want with their lives. And so they are inherently uh, feminist stories, whether the heroine identifies as a feminist or whether there's politics in the stories or not. And most of the time, there are no uh, open out political issues in these books. But they're about, you know, women fighting for what they want for for their lives, for themselves, for their kids. And as a woman, I can identify very much with that, with that fight, with uh, the desire to succeed as a mother, to have a career, um, and to be respected by the people in one's life. So that's really what drew me to it. Yeah. 
that's sort of interesting because I think the stereotype is that these stories are basically about the princess in the tower waiting for the prince to rescue them. Yes. And so, and so the idea, you know, I think that would be not the critique, but just people's kind of prior assumptions. And, and that is, so it's not, they would think it's not really about the woman actualizing herself, but about just waiting to be saved or waiting to be swept off her feet or so on. Yes, and I think that that has its roots in the 1970s uh, initial romance novels where um, you kind of, I don't know, it kind of follows like a social movement of back then, men were the big scary thing. And so the heroine being repeatedly rescued by the man in in what were then called bodice rippers um, kind of had, had the effect of making... Uh, men an understandable and benevolent and non-dangerous force in women's lives. And as women gained more power and control over their own existence, that kind of went away. Um, Books where the heroine is rescued by the hero probably wouldn't sell as well today as they did in the 70s. Uh, And that's because women don't necessarily have that same need now to feel that, you know, that, that, that uh, somebody's going to look out for them. Now it's more about the woman looking out for herself and finding somebody who fits in with that. Though there certainly are scenes where in my books, if, as you've said, you've read the Colorado high country series where the hero plays a heroic role, but there are also scenes where the heroine in her own way saves uh, the hero. And, um, for example, in Falling Hard, the the veteran with PTSD who falls in love with the nurse, um, she does a lot to bring him back to himself. So there are different ways of rescuing people. And the main rules I have for my characters are the hero can never, ever, ever intentionally cause the heroine harm. And the heroine must be a complete person in and of herself. Well, that's how they came across. They came across as, when I read them, as very modern and with very healthy relationships and with very strong um, male and female characters. Um, So a lot of your characters in that series anyway are strong guys, are firefighters, park rangers, mountain rescuers, rock climbers. But you also have, there's a woman on the... uh, mountain rescue team who's like the one of the best rock climbers in the world in the in, within the fictional world and so she sometimes shows the guys a thing or two about how to get up the cliffs yeah and, and her character is kind of loosely based on Sasha DeJulian who uh, I don't know if you've ever watched her career but there are times when uh, she shows up and guys want to give her climbing tips and then she quite frankly hands them their butt so <laughs> um, those are always fun to watch um, yeah, there are some amazing women climbers and I come from a climbing family. Uh, my dad was one of, was part of the early rock climbing scene in Boulder and put up, uh, some first ascents on some routes there. And, uh, he, he knew, um, he knew a lot of the, uh, big names in climbing early on. Yeah, so it was natural for me to gravitate toward a series that focused on climbers. Nobody else was doing that in in romantic fiction at the time. I still don't think anyone else is doing it. It's got a very specialized vocabulary and whatnot. But for me, it was a lot of fun because I finally got to use some of that in my books. The series is set roughly up in the mountains above Boulder. It's based loosely on, uh, what's the little mountain town up there? 
Ned. It's based loosely on Nederland, yeah. And I did get some fantastic help from the Nederland Fire Department. Um, their chief, uh, um, he sat down with me for a day. Uh, I wanted to know more about his job, and he said the best way to do that would be to look at unedited photos from the job. And these included fatal accidents in Boulder Canyon and climbing accidents and whatnot. And it was a real education in terms of what they, what they faced. And he, he introduced me to the Netherland uh, uh, triathlon, the Netherland midnight triathlon, which is where you go to Boulder, get drunk, and then drive your car into Boulder Creek. Um, (laughs) Sounds like a bad strategy. Yeah. But very funny guy. Um, but yeah, I had to come up with a fictional name for the town because I don't want to run into conflict with with the different townspeople, but um, uh, or the the entity of the town itself. But it was it was was a lot of fun to write, I have to say. And it's the first time I've written straight contemporary romance without the suspense element because my primary genre that I write is a hybrid of the thriller with or the suspense book with romance called romantic suspense and um this is the first time when i was writing just straight contemporary romance and as i'm sure you are thinking right now well there's a fair amount of suspense in those books and it did kind of just leak in there it was very hard for me to keep it out entirely i would say that there are as much action books as they are romance books yeah, and I enjoy that action part. I really do enjoy the action part so much. I mean, I used to climb. I had a serious fall 40 feet that put me out of climbing for the rest of my life. But um, out the outdoors, I grew up in the outdoors. So it's very fun for me to do that. 40 feet's a pretty big fall. <laughs> yes. When the helicopter picked me up, uh, they had to fly me to a trauma center. Uh, the pilot said, why aren't you dead? And I said, uh, I don't know, but if this chopper crashes, I'm going to be pissed. That seems like bad uh, piloting bedside manner, but still, I mean, that's that's pretty harrowing. How did you, did they have to rope you out, rope you up the cliff or what? No, the way it happened, we were very isolated. We were in very deep in the backcountry. My father and I were on a first day of a five-day backpacking expedition, and I stepped on ice and fell 20 vertical feet and bounced over rock in a rock slide area for 20, and we were at about 12,800 feet. And I was badly injured, and we hadn't seen anybody all day long. And we were very lucky in that uh, a ranger on his day off spotted us and came over to tell us, you can't camp here, and realized that we were only there because I was badly injured. And he just happened to be a paramedic, and he just happened to have a radio. So he called for a, um, a helicopter, but the terrain was so um, rugged that it took the helicopter hours to find a place to land. And during that time, uh, the ranger um, uh, and my father helped me get to uh, where the helicopter finally did come down. So it was nightmarishly painful, though, for me, hopping around with multiple broken bones and having two men support me. They dragged me on my mother's raincoat down a snow field. So that part was easy, but the rest of it was really, really rough going. And I've never completely recovered from that fall. Wow. Well, I guess the only silver lining is it gave you some grist for the uh, romance writing because there's a whole lot of 
mountain rescue stuff in those in that series. Yes, I'm the only romance author who has actually been rescued by a, a, a mountain rescue team. And, you know, the the funny thing is, I hadn't published anything at that point. And as I was sitting there, a complete and total mess, I thought in my head, my life is only going to make sense if I write about this stuff. And so eventually I did. <laughs> that's crazy. I Yeah, I guess that's when you know you're a writer, because most people will just be thinking, Oh my God, my leg hurts so bad or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I suppose so. Well, it does seem, you know, it did, I don't have experience rock climbing, but I've spent a fair amount of time in the mountains. So all that stuff seemed really authentic to me. Um, you know, so it works. It's not just sort of added on as fluff background. That's integral to the story and it it's, feels very authentic. No, thank you. I'm happy to hear that. And it does come from uh, a lifetime of, I was 30 when I fell. So that's 25 years ago now. And I really did grow up in the mountains. We would go up there every weekend. My dad would stick the four of us in a field and say, stay. And then he would go off and climb nearby with inside of us. And we grew up in the outdoors and we learned to belay when we were very young <laughs> and to repel uh, and all of the, the little climbing basics. And my brother went on to be a very serious climber, semi-professional climber, and he summited Aconcagua, the highest mountain in the Western Hemisphere. And as you know, both of my, my brother and my father have climbed all the 14ers in the state and many of the 13ers and 12-teeners too. So it's really the family activity. I didn't know you had a brother who did that. Yes, I've got a photo of him standing on top Akon, uh, and what an experience for him. I uh, was incredibly proud of him to make that. It was just he was with another person, so it was just the two of them together. And uh, a lot of people think Aconcagua, which is 22,000 some odd feet, um, is a walk-up because it's not nearly as technical as Everest. But more people typically die on Akon uh, than they than on Everest because too many people attempt it who can't do it. And the altitude is mm. still a problem. Well, Colorado seems to be a hotbed for that. So uh, I recently watched The Dawn Wall. Oh, yes. Which is really intense. So but good. This kid, uh, what's his, Tommy, I think his name is Tommy something. Tommy Caldwell. Anyway, he grew, he grew up in Estes Park and then uh, he went on to become one of the greatest climbers in the world. My family, um, we have met a lot of these people. I personally haven't met Tommy Caldwell, but um, Alex Honnold. Um, uh, I've spoken with him. I mentioned that I had fallen, and he wanted to hear the whole story. So, so I told him the whole story, and then uh, they had told us no pictures, but he posed for photos with uh, for a photo with me and my father, and my brother, and, and my son Benjamin. So that was fun. <laughs> I mean, I've been in the mountains enough to know that, especially people who come from the flatlands, it's really easy to underestimate the mountains and the snow and the avalanche dangers, and to get yourself into situations where it, you're really you're in, you can get in real danger real fast. So I appreciate these mountain rescue teams who who do who have the skills and have the equipment to go out and save people when right. they when they get into trouble, either through being dumb or just by some freak accident. And mine was a case of a little bit of both. Well, one and another reason why the High Country series, I think, is appealing to people, at least to me, is because it has, it portrays such a tight sense of community where it's a small town and everybody knows each other. And so you get the 
bad side of that with the g- town gossip and such, but you also get the really tight and long-term connections. And I wonder if a lot of people seem to be missing that these days. So Yes, they they are. And, and one of the reasons that, for example, my friend Robin Carr, her uh, Virgin River series, which is now on Netflix, and small town romance in general, one of the great appeals to it is the sense of community because... Was, you know nowadays we're connected with people all over the world so you'd think we're more connected than ever but we're really not uh those those connections where you know people have your back and they care about you and they accept you i think that's relatively rare and i have readers and my sister uh, who reads everything i write while i'm writing it bless her she um says that she gets a feeling when she starts a Colorado high country book, like she's sinking into a tub of hot water or something like that, where she just relaxes into the story. And other readers have said that too. So that always really makes me happy to hear because I'm trying very hard to create a sense of connectedness. So I saw this thing that you mentioned on Netflix, Virgin River. Yes. So you're you're saying that was originally written as romance fiction? Yes, it was. And uh, Robin Carr is a wonderful person. Um, and her Virgin River series really kind of, I, I have to say, launched or gave a great deal of impetus to the small town romance as part of the contemporary romance genre. Because she took small town romance and it wasn't all about uh, virgin heroines who never swear and everybody who's perfect. She made it real. Uh, Small town romance in the past kind of was uh, idyllic to the point of rotting your teeth, you know, completely saccharine. And she took that away and she put in relevant contemporary issues uh, that affect people's lives and still manage to build that wonderful community. And and there's a reason why it's very popular. Well, that's interesting because it occurred to me that if you tone down some of the sex scenes in your stories, that they would make perfectly fine Hallmark or Netflix type of series. So did they have to tone down the sex in that to, to film it? I'm sure they did. And, and, you know, when you film it, you take a lot of the explicitness out automatically because when you're writing a sex scene for a book... If you don't put the words there, that's not happening. So you can either write it very vaguely, and basically we call that slamming the door in the reader's face, or you can go into the bedroom with the couple, and at that point, uh, your language, what happens is entirely dependent on your language. But when you film it, you eliminate a whole bunch of stuff by simply having the hero kiss the heroine and start unbuttoning her shirt and they lie down on the sofa or the bed or whatever. You just skip so much verbiage with that simple image and accomplish the same thing. So it's by nature, I mean, if you get what I'm saying, it's by nature less explicit. Um, And of course, you know, you don't take it to the nth degree like my books sometimes do. And um, I mean, actually my books are not that erotic compared to today's standards to tell you the truth. (laughs) I have no basis of comparison. <laughs> right. Um, well, I guess you miss all of the inner model, in, the stuff going on inside of their head during this. That's hard to convey. Yes, all the reactions the and the uh, the uh, every description of every little sensation. Those kinds of things are not part of it. You're just watching people kiss or undress each other, and the camera hides a lot of it. So. Yeah, and I I do hope Netflix is listening because I agree both the iTeam series and the Colorado High Country series would be perfect for Netflix. (laughs) So 
you haven't sold the uh, screen rights yet? No, I still own them for all of my books. And that's been a great aspiration of mine, but one that I have yet to achieve. Well, you know, with all of the different streaming services coming online, it just seems like if there's good content out there, make that because there's still there's like I'm, I've am i I've gotten so picky about what I watch now because I can always find good content. Right. So I'm I have a lot less patience with stuff that I don't that I just sort of marginally like. Yeah. So it seems like there should be room for for things like that. So and I've, I've even thought about making them myself. Um, I my younger son has a film degree and uh, he has written screenplays before. So I've thought about doing that myself. Certainly there are a lot of people who do things independently and one way to retain control over your creative work is to manage it yourself, which is why I divorced my publishing house in, uh, gosh, when was that, 2013 or so, and went fully indie. Wow. Um, I still have books that are published by Penguin uh, that are published by New York, but right now all the books that I'm publishing, I am by choice doing it myself uh, through my own little single proprietorship business. Um, And that's to have control over marketing. That's to uh, not give away 92% of every dime I earn, which is what you do in a contract with New York. Wow. Um, Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. (laughs) And and also uh, to not be disappointed because you can publish, you can write a great book, turn it into New York, Maybe they don't even want to mess with it. Very few of my books had any tampering at all. Um, but then they don't want to, because they, their publishing calendar is full and they're not going to put it out for another 18 months or so. And uh, you wait for that income until they publish it, until like a year has gone by after they publish it. So in a sense, there's some real income insecurity um, if you're dealing with a company that's deciding when your books are coming out and so forth. And so doing it myself, yes, I have to create the covers myself. Yes, I have to do a lot of additional work. But at the same time, then the outcome is in my hands. I decide when the book comes out. I decide the price point. I'm able to be a little more competitive that way. That's super interesting. But I do want, I want to ask about one aspect of the publishing, though, because I am aware that you've had some stealing of your work. Yes. So I'm curious. I want to know, first of all, what's been the scope of that problem? And then... When you were under contract with larger publishers, were were they dealing with that problem better than you can deal with, on, with it on your own? Or are you doing about as well? Or how does that all work out? I'm doing a much better job of dealing with it than they did. Um, the publishing house, uh, I would forward them pirate links and they would shrug and say, there's really no way to deal with this. And they would send some takedown notices, um, but they weren't as aggressive as I wanted them to be. So I've contracted with a company out of the UK that manages that for me. Um, It's not cheap and it's not really satisfying in that there's still a huge piracy problem. For some reason, there are people who believe that it's okay for me to work for free. If you ask them whether they wanted to work their retail job or bus tables or uh, teach school and not get paid at all, they would say, well, that's different. Somehow, if something is a downloadable electronic file, they think that it automatically should be free. And what they're paying for is not the document. What they're paying for is months of work on my part that went into that single book. 
And so it's enraging. I've had direct contact with pirates and told them, why don't you just come into my kitchen and steal the food out of my refrigerator? Because that's exactly what you're doing when you share files illegally. And uh, it seems like there's potentially some generational thing here where uh, people are used to just downloading stuff and they really cannot see that there's something morally wrong with taking something without paying for it. So the problem is people, primarily people sharing files for free, not, for example, repackaging them and selling them? That happens too. Um, There are people who take your book and give it a different title and put a cover on it and put it up. And I have been plagiarized. Um, It turned my face so red and so much heat in my head. I thought the top of my head was going to come off when I first read this person who basically changed the names of my characters and put this thing out as her original work, but it was verbatim mine. Uh, So that's really enraging there. The whole frontier of electronic publishing comes with certain pitfalls and that's one of them. Uh, And, and it's really, in a way it's like the wild west, you know, (laughs) this is somewhat unexplored territory. There was a gold rush period early on where it was possible to be an established New York author, self-publish a few things, and become a millionaire. And um, I got on the front crest of that and then was diagnosed with cancer. And by the time I was back to writing again, the gold rush was over, unfortunately. Otherwise, we'd be having this conversation on a yacht. But... um, (laughs) But uh, it's still very lucrative if you've got the, the reach. But at the same time, there are definitely risks. And, and I just wasn't impressed with New York's ability or willingness to handle it. Well, that's, yeah, that takes a lot of chutzpah to just take somebody's book and change the, change the names and then uh, put it out and try to sell it. That's a whole new level of, I mean, that's just shocking. You know, there's a, you should uh, Google hashtag copy paste Chris with a C, I think it's C-R-I-S, Chris, because there was an author who made a fortune basically copy-pasting from other people's books and changing names. And uh, she Did he was, go to jail? Did he get sued? As I a mean, woman, and uh, I believe she lives in Brazil, and the copyright laws are very different there. So though her works were taken down, uh, I don't think she I, – I know she's being sued, but I don't know where the outcome is at this point. Wow. So there's a lot more to being an author than, I mean, just sitting down and writing the stories, there's a lot to that. But dealing with the business aspect of it, you're indicating is a whole other ball of knots and a set of problems. Yes, it is. And for me, it's come with uh, something of a steep learning curve. I got a lot of support initially from Marie Force, who is a mega bestseller and a friend who was succeeding at... um, self-publishing at the time when I was forced out of journalism. And she uh, um, said, you know, you don't, you don't need New York. And she really helped me uh, get launched uh, as an indie author. And so I'm actually what's called a hybrid author because I still have titles with New York. You mean your older titles? Uh, older titles, yes. Everything new. They're all indie. And the whole, you know, <laughs> uh, every, there's so many things that go with it. And at first it was really overwhelming. You have to get an ISBN number for your book. You have to design the cover. You have to come up with the titles, which not all authors do in romance. You have to write the back blurb, which is what sells it. You have to set up all your accounts. You have to have a way to format it, upload it. 
to the different, you know, different types of files that uh, these different publishing platforms require EPUB or Mobi um, and, and, or PDF or whatever it happens to be. And you have to have a way to edit your work. You have to have the support network. You have to establish that for yourself in order to put out a quality piece of work that isn't garbage. And, and there, there was, or there has been a tendency for some, not just the plagiarism, but stuff like there was the whole dinosaur rape phenomenon, where uh, someone uh, discovered that an author was publishing stories like Ravaged by the T-Rex and stuff like what? that that had some sort of novelty appeal. What? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, didn't, I didn't read them. Yeah, I didn't read them. Um, but they resulted in the publishing platforms, and I'm talking about Barnes & Noble and iTunes, iBooks, and um Amazon basically taking all erotica down and screening it and saying, <laughs> you can't really blame them for that. They didn't know they were selling dino rape stories, but you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know it's beyond my understanding, but uh, so there, there has been some uh, strangeness that has crept in uh, because anybody can sit down and create an Amazon account um, with Kindle Direct Publishing and upload whatever they want. And they, they do kind of have some quality controls now. If somebody reports a lot of typos, Amazon can force you to fix it or take it down. Um, so, but still, like I said, it's kind of like the wild, wild west. I guess maybe you should write an article up just about how just about the business side of it. <laughs> Tell us a bit about your other series, like the I Team, and then some of your historical novels. Uh, the I Team series, I Team stands for Investigative Team, is based on uh, a lot of the work I did as an investigative reporter, and those stories were really fun to write. In fact, uh, writing the first one, I found myself sitting there laughing. I had written historical romance only prior to that. And um, I was in the middle of investigating a local cement plant and getting some threats. Uh, a state health inspector had called and told me he was worried about my welfare because he'd been to the plant and the manager was whipping up the staff by telling them that if this lady journalist, quote unquote, didn't back off, they were going to lose their jobs. And what he said to me is, these guys aren't going to write you a letter to the editor. They're going to beat the shit out of you with baseball bats. And um, I wasn't terribly afraid because, as you know, I got my share of death threats. I've even had a gun waved in my face at my desk. <laughs> so, Good Lord. So it didn't really intimidate me. <laughs> but I told my agent about it, and she said, you know, you really ought to be writing romantic suspense because you live it. And I said, well, yeah, except for the romantic part. So um, I started writing it, and I'd never read it before. It is a hybrid genre, uh, and it's very tricky to get right. And I try to get it right simply by being as um, uh, accurate or veracity is the huge thing. Like, would you be having sex when you have men shooting bullets at you? No. Yeah. <laughs> you know, little things like that. I mean, it's, I'm being glib there, but um, that there's a trick. In real life, would you be kissing in this situation? In real life, would you be thinking about your feelings in this situation? Or would you be running? Um, and uh, sometimes people 
writing romantic suspense have a tendency to create heroines who are what we call in the industry TSTL, too stupid to live, where they're, you know, where, where their safety depends on not using the telephone and giving away their location. But what's the one thing they do? They make that phone call, you know, and I tried really hard to have no TSTL heroines. And also, uh, though I do write kind of strong alpha males and they're all, uh, all, uh, own firearms. They're all competent law enforcement, former military. One is a Senator. That was the oddball in that series. Um, they're not, uh, alpha males who are jerks or what we call alpha holes. They're not that (laughs) they're not a holes. They're, um, they're very human guys who also just happen to be strong and, and, uh, a match for the heroine's determination. I guess you could say that. So, um, and the crazy thing is here, I started writing this genre that I knew nothing about. And I have been dubbed the queen of romantic suspense, which is just nuts. I think, but great. I'll take it. I don't have a tiara, but I will take it. Um, and, um, so that's what I write mostly at this point before that, uh, the I team series has been concluded more or less, though I do drag the characters out because they are so beloved that, that, um, it's hard to describe the devotion of my readers to, to especially Mark Angelo, um, Mark Hunter and Julian Darkangelo. They have kind of a bromance going on that, that the readers love. So, um, but uh, I have a spinoff series now called uh, Cobra Elite, which is uh, some of the characters from that, from the I-Team series started a private military company. And so now it's about what those characters get up to and the people that they meet, um, which is very different from me. Uh, you know, a private military company is a big difference from a newsroom, but it's also exciting. Um, and the historical romance, that's where I started because that's what I had been reading. And that's what was really big during the seventies, eighties and nineties. And, uh, my degree is in classics, as you mentioned, and I studied, uh, classical archeology, span uh, as a master's, though I did not finish that master's, I was all but thesis. And, um, and I, so I really got into the research and I wanted to not write stories about the elites. If you look at historical romance, you have umpteen gazillion stories about the, the Duke, who's quite the rake and the heroine, the heiress that he seduces because he needs her fortune or something like that. And, and I don't care what Dukes are doing that. I don't, I really don't care. I wanted to write about the ordinary people because as an archeology span student, that's what had interested me. What were the lives of ordinary people? Like, I suppose there's less glamor in that, but maybe there's more to relate to. And so I, I've had two of my historicals were finalists for the Rita award, which is like the Oscars of romance. And uh, people will say, nobody writes historical romance the way you do. And that's because every single word has to be from that period. I literally look them up. If that word didn't exist in 1730, I do not use it. And so that's a challenge as a writer um, to be on top of the etymology of, of every word and the technology. My first book I did, to give you some idea, two and a half years worth of research before I started writing it. And that was in the pre-internet days. 
So that was me going to Norland Library on the CU campus, checking out 10 books, coming home, filling up index cards, and then taking them back and getting 10 more for two and a half years. Um, so I put a lot into them, and I probably, probably will write a couple of historicals this year just to get back to it. I think that all of the warfare and the violence and the tensions that we're facing in our society make romantic suspense hard for some people to read at this point. And um, so I'm going to see if if historicals can make a comeback. <laughs> that would be nice. Well, my so my guess would be that because with an historical piece, the reader has to get not only into the characters, but into the time and the different yes. ways that people thought. So that seems like a barrier to at least some people. So is there just a big market for that kind of stuff? Or are they harder to market and to convince the reader that they can get into it without a whole bunch of extra, like feeling like they're going back to history school? Well, there's, there's a way it's how you write it. Uh, you have to make the characters someone that, that the reader can identify with. And there are still plenty of authors who publish only historical romance. A lot of it is Regency romance set in England during that specific period of time. And I know readers love it. Um, it's not something I ever want to write because again, you're dealing with dukes and dowagers and all this kind of stuff. And I just, I don't know, maybe it's the, maybe it's some uniquely sort of American part of my personality. My family came here in 1610 on the second bunch of ships to land at Jamestown. And, um, I, I'm really all for kind of the, the ordinary person. So, um, but yeah, I think you have to make the character someone that the reader can identify with right away to draw them into that uh, historical context. I think probably the biggest barrier for historical romance coming into our time is just the restrictions on women were so, I mean, it was so very different then. And the last thing a contemporary one, a reader wants to read is a mousy, passive heroine who simply accepts that her life is being batted around by the, the men. Uh, her father picking her husband, telling her, you know, and those that was the reality to some degree. But there were also lots of women who had a voice, who fought back, who tried to do their own thing, who kind of had like this proto-feminist vibe, who objected to their station. And that's another thing is I tried very hard to create heroines. Um, I didn't shy away from showing the negativity of things like slavery or the slaughter of native people or, or the roles of women. I tried to bring that out um, with some awareness of the, the morality of those things from our context looking back. So I think this goes a long way toward explaining why the books I've read, there's, they feel so authentic. Like they feel like they could be real people doing living real lives because you have had a lot of experience in each of the areas where you write, even though you said you didn't know a lot about it. Obviously you had a lot of personal experience as a journalist, which provided the background for that series. And with your classic education, right. that provided a great background for the history. And then your, your background mountaineering and with knowing people who do that, that's great background for that aspect of the writing. So Mike, I mean, I haven't, like I said, I haven't read other romance novels, but it, it seems like that you're, I mean, you're a real writer. You're a novelist. You're bring an enormous amount of authenticity to your work. So I had a, 
I'll, I'll just throw you this question then. Because a lot of people, including me previously, would look down their noses at romance and not view it as real literature. So do you have anything right. <laughs> else to say in terms of defending the, the genre? I do. Thank you. Um, uh, when I first started writing, uh, I had taken a class from Reg Sonner at CU. And Reg Sonner is an essayist and poet. He was the winner of the first Walt Whitman Award here in the United States when that award was originally uh, created and offered. And um, he sat me down and uh, at the end of this honors class, I took with him and he said, I'm sorry, this is supposed to be a conference about my grades. He said, I'm sorry, all I can give you is an A, and it's very clear to me that what you're doing is far above and beyond any other student in the class. He told me that he had lots of kids who told him, I want to be a, a writer, and and I was on, one of only two students of his entire career, and he was close to retirement at that point whom he felt could do whatever I wanted to do in terms of writing. And then he warned me, if you write romance, there are going to be people who look down on you. All you have to say to those people is, what have you published? Because anyone who is a serious writer knows that it takes the same amount of work to write something that's romance or to write something that's something, some other genre or literary fiction or essays or whatever. He said the big difference between what you write and what I write is that more people read what you write. And I held on to that and I believe it's true. I think that when you hear people putting down romance as trashy novels, those are often people who've never read a romance or um, who have weird resentments against against women. Um, it is the only genre that is written by women, largely, for women, largely, um, and published with, with the entire publishing industry that handles it being mostly women. Um, it is diversifying. There is LGBTQ romance now. Um, you know, we've had a lot of growing pains, I guess you could call it recently, over the issues of diversity in romance. And um, uh, so it's not it's not all women. There are, I have a very actually strong male readership of military men, believe it or not. Uh, I know of a SEAL team that took uh, one of my books on a deployment and passed it around. It was about a Navy SEAL. And uh, I have a, a male reader who sent me his, his deployment medals from his time in Iraq in gratitude for the box of books that his mother-in-law sent him. They were my books, and he read them and fell in love with the I-Team series. So uh, there are a lot of stereotypes about romance that just do not bear up if you take the time to look at it. Hmm, those are great stories. Well, yeah, like I said, I mean... I long resisted reading anything in the genre, but then when I picked up your book and read it, it was, it's a great story. I mean, even if you take all the sex scenes out, it's just a great story about heroic people getting their lives together getting themselves on track and finding love and uh, forging their, their romantic lives. So. Yes. And isn't that what we all want to do? I mean, not just our romantic lives, but our lives in general, isn't it? Isn't that happy ending, that happy family, that close relationship? Isn't that something that we all aspire to on one level or another? And I feel like romance novels are kind of about the really important stuff in life, uh, not remote philosophy, 
more like how do you sort through your inner damage as a person or deal with a person who's wounded and forge a healthy relationship out of that. That's, that's like big life stuff. And I don't know why that gets belittled, but it does. Well, I think here's my guess. If you, I read, I read more science fiction. So there's a lot of science fiction that's just garbage. That's just, I wouldn't, you know, I can't get past the first few pages. But there's some, the best science fiction is exceptionally good. And so my guess is that's similar in every genre. So there's probably some, quote, romant, romantic fiction that you would read and not necessarily endorse or enjoy. But the cream of the crop is probably quite good. So I, I expect that that's similar across genres. So if you're looking for the, quote, trash, you can probably find it in any genre. But if you're looking for the, the better, yes. more authentic works, you can find that too. Does that seem fair? Yeah, I think it absolutely is. And that's actually an argument that I have used saying that, you know, you can find you can find all kinds of levels of quality in any kind of product. Um, and, uh, and romance is no different. So you alluded to this. So let's get into this. Let's just jump in with both feet. The okay. Romance Writers of America is currently in a meltdown. Like this is the big uh, member organization for romance writers. So tell us a bit about what this organization does or is supposed to do and the nature of its current problems. Um, I haven't been directly involved in, in any of it. Are you a, uh, I are you a member of this group? I am a member. Okay. I am a member. I'm still a member at this moment. I am a member because I may need to vote on something. And so I've retained my membership for that purpose. Um, Basically, what happened was there were some concerns about a couple of individuals who were opening a, a publishing house, a small publishing house, about their uh, attitudes toward um, people of color, uh, authors of color. And this scrutiny brought up um, other concerns related to racist language in books and uh, an a member of the RWA's ethics committee who happens a full disclosure here to be a personal friend of mine, uh, Courtney Milan brought out some of this. Um, she's uh, of um, white and Chinese descent, both she's half Chinese and her, her mother was from China. And so she was reading this book that involved an Asian character that had all of the sort of old fashioned kind of language around it. To be fair, it was originally published in 1999, but it has been since republished with opportunities for revision. And so she called these people out. And this was part of a long, months-long process of um, looking at the attitudes that these publishers had toward authors of color. This has been a concern in RWA for a very long time, that authors... Um, of color were not winning Rita's were not finaling in the Rita contest were having their books shelved away from romance in bookstores as their own section as if okay these books are only for black readers because obviously white readers don't want to read African-American romance um, and uh, just stuff like that and and uh, the um, people of color in RWA and I have to say LGBTQ people too have been fighting for representation or a voice or a presence, recognition in RWA. So what happened when 
Courtney called all of this out in a long series of tweets, and it's a little more complicated, but we just don't have time for the whole thing, is that um, the people that she was calling out filed uh, complaints against her with RWA as publishers. And I don't understand it fully, but my understanding is that as a publisher, they really don't have a right to file a complaint with RWA. But rather than looking into the racism, RWA kicked Courtney out banned her from the organization. Uh, And that resulted in an absolute firestorm of authors standing up and saying, oh, wait a minute now, you're firing the person who called out the racism and not the people who were potentially excluding authors of color. And and so I, I, for example, withdrew my entry to this year's Rita contest. Um, I just pulled it out because I didn't want to be a part of, of the contest until RWA manages to get its act together. And then its responses, one after the other, it just, it just kind of kept doing the wrong thing, culminating uh, in this cover for the next uh, Romance Writers Review, the, 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 the publication that they put out every month had a mountain and on the top of the mountain is a white woman reaching down to help a black woman up. And that was their idea of racially sensitive. And Uh it was so desperately tone deaf um, uh, that people could only, I don't know, laugh or throw up or I'm not sure. So at this point, RWA, a lot of the people, most of the people have resigned and there's going to be an audit. And I don't know if we're going to be able, if we have to just start from scratch or what we have to do. But the bottom line is that there was, there is, or was a very strong, I don't want to politically pigeonhole these people, but very strong element. For example, in 2005, they tried to rewrite the bylaws of RWA to define romance as being between one man and one woman. And you can see the political echoes there. And that resulted in hilarity. Okay, is what about one man and one vampire? Or one vampire and one woman? Or a shapeshifter and a woman? Or Most of us were laughing this off, but I did talk to members who thought this was the greatest idea because they were talking about, you know, what if RWA is taken over by Lambda? You know, the, the boy love, man boy love association. And I thought, oh, my God, do they really think that that is a possibility? It just seems so extreme. And queen of romance, Nora Roberts, basically shut it all down, saying, if you pass this, I quit the organization. And so it just evaporated. That effort evaporated. But that's indicative of the tensions in the organization that have been there for a very long time between a group that sees romance as straight, white, heterosexual um, uh, and then other groups <laughs> that feel like the romance genre can encompass the breadth and width of human love, regardless of race or gender or uh, sexuality, all of those different factors. So that's kind of it. Tell us a bit about why is this group important? What does it do for its members? It, um, I think it's most helpful or has been most helpful to unpublished authors uh, helping them to learn the licks of writing, how to put a book together, how to craft the craft of writing, the art of marketing, all these different things. 
I was published before I joined, so I can't say that it helped me on my journey in that way. I've been on panels at RWA conventions, but I've not um, participated in in that in the classroom side of it as a you know trying to learn from it. So for me, it really was all about the annual conference of going, doing my panels, and drinking with my friends. <laughs> And in that way, it was it was pretty cool, but um, and it does do advocacy with with copy paste Chris that whole scandal. Mm. Uh, it's tried to help with the various plagiarism things, with various problems with Amazon, with various problems with Facebook. It has tried to step in on behalf of of romance writers. Um, it at times has had kind of a bias toward the publishers, uh, which is not always helpful to writers there's some tension between the publishing industry and writers and oftentimes it would take the side of the publishing industry and there's lots of money there and the publishing houses sponsor the conference so you can see Mm -hmm. uh, why that might be so the publishers by the way have withdrawn from the conference so you've had avon and penguin and all these big publishing houses have pulled out of this coming year's conference, which I, I don't know if it's even still on at this point, uh, over this whole suspension of Courtney Milan. She was, by the way, um, unsuspended, unbanned uh, later when irregularities in the whole process and the vote came out. So uh, at any rate, yeah, so that's, it was an advocacy organization or has been an advocacy organization. And, and there were some good things about it. And people have tried to shake it up. Uh, and I thought we were making progress and then this happened and it was very clear that we were not making the progress we thought we were making. So it's very sad in that sense, but RWA has never been essential to me for my, for my writing. Um, and, um, I really want to stand by Courtney and authors of color and LGBTQ writers and people who just want to have a voice. I mean, I really believe that in this country, especially a writer should write what a writer wishes to write, period, end of discussion, you know, (laughs) write, write what comes to you, write what you want to write. And there shouldn't be, um, I, I think the genre is wide enough and human society is big enough to find a home for everything. Well, I have not read the book at the center of the controversy, but it it would, doesn't surprise me at all if I would, would find some racism or race racial stereotypes in older works from the genre. But that's the same right. as of any genre. I mean, you pick up science fiction from forty years ago. I guarantee you, it will have some of it will have some racism, sexism, and so on. Yeah, there's actually some pretty hilarious scenes in Star Trek. Oh man, you know, I watched the original series not too long ago, and I was kind of shocked by how. <laughs> how just today we would just regard it as totally sexist you could never get something like that on the air it was just uh i mean pretty over the top i thought um at least in some of the early episodes but i wanted to ask you a related question on this because i i'm on on board with your idea that authors should write what interests them but i've also heard some stories about people taking flack for writing quote outside of their uh outside of their own racial or gender areas so like people taking flack if you if a caucasian puts in an an asian character or anything like that so how do how do you navigate that as a writer because i know that you some of your characters are native americans 
and you actually have an afterword about yeah. how you try to deal with with this issue. So how do you how do you address that part of the equation? Well, I think there's a difference between writing characters uh, outside of your own race, ethnicity, and then cultural appropriation. Um, and I think the difference is connection. Building connections through research, through talking with actual human people and communities, building that connection makes the work authentic. Sitting down and writing a book with, say, an African-American character and using the stuff I've seen on TV to fill in the gaps of what that means, who that character is, that I don't think would fly as well. And so I would critique that. And I've written um, several uh, Latinx characters. I've written several native characters, Lakota and uh, Diné. And I have connections to both of those communities that are personal. Um, and, you know, Colorado is extremely, has a, has a huge uh, Latinx population. And my characters, uh, one of them was specifically Puerto Rican uh, from the island. And I've never even been there. And so what I did was I found... Uh, a couple of my readers, and I love them, Arlene and Bea, and um, and, a, and a male friend of theirs. Um, and they basically we had it. We had a, a year and a half long chat going while I was writing that book, Striking Distance, um, about specifically Puerto Rican spanish if he's going to cuss in spanish what is he going to say as a puerto Rican? <laughs> because it's not going to be the same thing so basically i have you know gotten a phd in in puerto rican profanity um and they laughed that they can laugh that such a bulk of my questions were about what would he say here um because it's very specific spanish is not monolithically spanish and i did the same thing when i had a character from the san luis valley whose family was mexican and the border moved over them uh and thus made them american um but he speaks that kind of mexican spanish and so then i worked with some mexican readers to help authenticate that but see i do that i do that also with uh characters from cultures i don't know such as um my last book was about a guy from Glasgow, Glaswegian. The hero was from Glasgow. And Glasgow is known for having its basically its own version of, of English slash Scots. Uh, they have their own slang. They have their own very unique pronunciation. And so I can't fake that. If I do, I'm going to fail. And that's true when you're writing about any other kind of subculture or culture or ethnicity or race. You have to put in the research and you have to really understand what you're doing. And so I have I am now an honorary Boricua, honorary Puerto Rican. Uh, I have a very strong Puerto Rican following, although I will point out I was accused of racism in that book by some white folks who don't know the difference between, you know, I, I thought that was very entertaining and that got some big eye rolls from my uh, Puerto Rican readers. So, you know, there are some risks inherent, but again, it always, for me, it always, always, always comes back to do your homework, do the research give the culture and the character the respect of getting to know them before you start putting words on the page. That sounds just right to me. That's, that sounds great. 
Um, I guess I'll, with that, I'll shift gears a bit. You alluded to this in the beginning, so I'll bring it up again. So years ago, maybe when I was um, more brash, I challenged you to take a gun class, and surprisingly, you did. Has that <laughs> has that had any influence on your writing of your certain of your novels at all? Oh, so much influence, and I just want to back it up by explaining that you know my home had been broken into one night in the middle of the night by two men with switchblades. They were rapists. They had raped and cut up another woman nine months earlier before trying to do the same to me. The police just happened to be on my street that night. And you and I can just marvel at that miracle. Uh, So I called 911 uh, as they were trying to get in. And the police were just right there and came running over. and, And these guys were so violent that one of them turned on a police officer with his blade out. Uh, so these guys were not friendly men and had the police not gotten there, I had a nine month old baby with me in the house. My older son was only nine months old and I had no way to defend myself. And I basically stood there screaming. I was the blonde screaming woman. And, um, and I grappled to deal with that. I had five years of PTSD following that. It was absolutely miserable and awful and horrific. And and my friendly Boulder friends would say things like, what were you wearing? Well, I was in my, and these are liberal Boulder friends, okay? And I am a, myself a progressive. So so they would ask me what I was wearing while well, I was in my house. It doesn't matter what I was wearing. And they would tell me how lucky I was that I didn't have a gun because if I had actually shot one of these guys, then I would have sacrificed my soul for my safety. And I kind of... You know, you're, I was very emotion, emotionally vulnerable after that, but I kind of bought that line, and um, and I know other people subsequently who've done the same thing after break-ins in their homes in Boulder. So there's there's some pressure there. So I wrote a column about this. I think it was on the 15th anniversary of the break-in or something like that. And you wrote a reply publicly that boy, that was a bunch of hogswill. And you challenged me to take that class. Well, I'm not one to back down from a challenge. So I took it. I was terrified. The experience of taking that both showed me that shooting was fun, but it also brought up a lot of the leftover agony of that experience, especially the part of the class where you have somebody running at you and you have to try to respond with that little laser gun. Um, because I know how fast somebody can move on you. And I don't know if you remember, but after the class, I spent the last part of it locked in the bathroom for 30 minutes sobbing because I was so devastated. Um, no, I didn't know that I was actually. In, yeah, they had to come and talk me out of the bathroom because I was just in there sobbing. And these guys who were would be described in Boulder as right-wing gun nuts, they were so incredibly kind to me. And they all described experiences not dissimilar from mine, though sexual assault was not the focus of their experiences. And so I took away a different attitude. And one of the things that I learned is that that you're taught over and over again not to shoot. And uh, that just having a firearm can prevent a crime because those guys would have looked through my window, seen a woman holding a shotgun or a handgun, and they would have said, oh, later, and been gone. Um, as it was, they spent two months in jail. Two months, that's all. Good. And, uh, that's maddening. 
I know it's absolutely infuriating. And um, so at a certain point uh, and at the, around the time of that class, I'd gotten divorced and my ex insisted that if I got a gun, he would take my kids away. And I was naive enough to believe that he could maybe do that. Uh, and he's still opposed to my having firearms <laughs> too bad, honey. Um, so, but I gradually got into it. What's more than that is that my children got into it. Um, they took firearms courses and they owned firearms before I did. And my younger son, I don't know if you know this, he is the current state championship, uh, state champion for, um, high powered Garand. So he won last year's gold medal at the state championships for a high power rifle. Uh, he's an incredibly talented shooter and, um, wow, and I'm so, to him. <laughs> yeah, thank you. He's, a, he's so many medals. Um, but the gold was really something that he'd wanted and I was so proud of him. So uh, firearms are now a part of our culture and we are, I'm going to state again for readers who want to pigeonhole people, progressive Democrats. I will never be the screaming helpless woman again. Never. I will never be that person. And um, I've gotten a lot of support and understanding from conservatives uh, on this, again, shattering stereotypes, whereas some of my liberal friends, uh, the men who attacked me were uh, Mexican, um, from Mexico, and um, they... uh, I had friends say to me, well, you know, you needed to, you need to understand what you represented to them. You represent the oppressor, you're blonde, you're white. And that doesn't help somebody who's grappling with PTSD. Just hint people. No, that does not help. It doesn't matter what I represented to them. I don't. Plus how racist to to excuse people because of their (laughs) culture. I mean, come on, that's crazy. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 the thing is, though, I, I kind of tried to assimilate those views to make myself feel better. Oh, yeah, well, you know, I am blonde. Um, but anyway, um, so all of those thorny issues aside, the way this has affected my writing is, well, I'm a member of a gun club. And when I want to write a book where somebody assassinates someone with a Ruger 22 with a silencer on it, I go to the gun club and I say, hey, guys, do you have one of these? And they say, sure, go in there and try it out. So I get to practice using the firearms that I write into my story. I own some of them. Uh, I uh, also know the difference between a magazine and a clip. So the language is correct. I cannot tell you the number of times that you read something in a romance novel, like somebody taking the turning off the safety on a Glock. No. Um, so uh, it adds, I think, another layer of authenticity. And also, um, my uh, younger son has a friend who served in the military. He was recently deployed to Syria. And listening to the two of them talk about firearms, and we're, you know, they, they, they love the art of shooting. Shooting can be very fun. Anyone who has not tried target shooting, I suggest that you try it. It's a ton of fun. Uh, and they'll sit down here. I remember one night they had a barbecue and I went to bed and they were talking about firearms. I got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and now they were talking about, they were talking about ammo and P90 
plus whatever. I don't even understand that stuff. That's beyond me. And I just shout down from the top of the stairs. Oh my God, you guys are still talking about this. But so uh, I wrote one story and I encourage you to read this because you will totally get a kick out of it. It's called Mark and Julian make a beer run. And it was just a quick little thing. A reader, again, I don't back down from a challenge. The reader said to me, um, I'll read anything you write, including if it's just Mark and Julian making a beer run. So I, I wrote the beer run and, and I got a D on it from one review site that said, real men don't talk like this. And I wanted to write back and say, do you know any men? Because, because I have men in my house who talk like that. And it was a ton of fun to write. And that really kind of showcases the firearm element of it, I think. Um, but yeah, that, so it does affect my writing. That was some time ago. So back then I was more brash than I am now. So I apologize if I was not. I don't think I was fully sensitive to where you were coming from. But, uh, well, I maybe wasn't able to talk about it. Um, traumatic experiences can be really, really hard to share with people. And we didn't know each other all that well. And I had a public face. You know, I was the editor of a newspaper. And that means that you try really hard not to do what I did at that class and break down in sobbing. But it was an ugly, ugly experience. I wouldn't wish it on anyone and uh, I really encourage women especially to do all they can to take control of their own safety. And that is one huge thing I got out of that class. When time, when seconds count, the police are only minutes away. Uh, and the average response time for police in Boulder is 15 minutes. And uh, these guys would have been in my house just a few seconds after the police actually arrived. So I was unspeakably lucky that time and i'll just offer a disclaimer for listeners this is not a statement on any particular set of laws or proposals or anything like that so that's a whole separate issue which people can talk about other some other time right i'm Um, not trying to be political here i'm not trying to this is just a deeply personal experience of having been attacked in my own home lived with ptsd for five years struggled to find the courage to go to sleep at night and then um, finding some peace with the idea of defending myself and being able to defend my children. They, they rely completely on, on me to protect them. And well, they don't now because they're, they're grown men. Um, but they did at the time. Well, I'll just throw out here as an aside too. My dad teaches workplace safety classes and such. So I've taken some of these classes. So, People who are not, who don't want to become involved in firearms, but are still interested in their safety, there's lots you can do um, just in terms of securing your area, your mindset, things like that, that can go a long way toward making you objectively more safe and mitigating potential problems. So people who are interested in that, there's lots of resources out there they can look at. Absolutely. You know, the fact that I had my windows closed, even though it was August, delayed those guys long enough for the police to arrive. So there are things that you can do to protect yourself. And I would never tell someone who is afraid of firearms or opposed to firearms that they should own them. I don't believe that at all. And I do believe in certain gun safety laws that can protect us. But that's, you know, completely, <laughs> that's completely off the topic of, of how it's affected my writing. But I, um, I really like empowerment. I grow a lot of my own food for the exact same reason. Um, 
as to be as so I bake all of my own bread. I try to be as self-sustaining as possible uh, and not dependent so much on, um, on other people doing things for me. I want to ask a switch gears a bit and ask another question about people's perception of the romance genre. Mm-hmm. I mean, ideally, and I can see how these stories are great for encouraging people to start or improve their romantic lives. And even just practical sex tips is great for that. But I think the <laughs> stereotype might be, or and do you actually worry that some readers, the, for some readers, these novels are more escapist and it, they come at the expense of pursuing your own romance? Do you think that there's anything to that concern? Uh, I think there could be. I know that there was a study done, a university study, and it found a couple of uh, elements coming out of the reading of romantic fiction. One of them was that it raised women's expectations. Uh, And so romance novels, for example, have been long been a staple of shelters for uh, women who are victims of domestic violence or partner violence uh, in order to raise their expectations that uh, to to kind of model, if you will, what a healthy relationship looks like. So on the one hand, it can raise the bar. On the other hand, for some women, these novels are so satisfying that that they are they, they come to substitute maybe for relationships in some cases. So I, I suppose it depends on the person. Um, and, and that's that one university study. And I can't quote the, the author or um, the university. It's just too much garbage in my brain over too many years. I just can't remember. Um, but I remember reading that and kind of nodding and thinking, okay, well, I could see that. Um, Ideally, I think what we intend them to be is empowering. Um, there's there are groups of women out there who say that women should not read romance, and these are like Christian fundamentalists because um, this dishonors your husband, and pretty soon you start expecting your husband to be like the romance novel hero. And and uh, I can't speak to that. I don't know, um, but you know, I, I don't think it's wrong to want a healthy, respectful relationship. Along these lines, Americans seem to do a pretty bad job at sex education. Yeah. Do you think that romantic fiction is helping to fill that need that people have to learn about this and learn about romances and learn about sex? I think it does uh, depends. I think it. I think it can. Uh, certainly, uh, there are those of us who've tried to bring things like contraception and um, safe sex into or safer sex into um, our work. At, when I wrote the book Naked Edge, which is named after a climb in um, El Dorado Canyon State Park. Uh, I deliberately had the male um, protagonist, the hero of the story, go to a clinic and get tested because he'd been around the block a few times. And he wanted to protect the heroine that he was quickly falling head over heels for from any consequences of his past action, shall we say. And so we have an opportunity to introduce topics like that at the same time you have to put it in very naturalistically because if you don't, it sounds, it starts to sound like you're having a, trying to teach a sex ed class in your book and nobody actually really wants to read that. So if you introduce the idea that he popped into a clinic and got tested 
that's enough. You know, you don't have to go into a big spiel. Um, and so there are those of us who've tried to introduce some responsibility, uh, into the stories. And, um, and I, I think that the romance in a way is like the spoonful of sugar that, that helps ideas like that go down. Um, there are people, we have a very uneven level of sex education in the U S and, um, romance in addition to showing healthy relationships can also model healthy sexual behavior. Um, so, and actually every once in a while I get a letter from a reader who doesn't understand something and I'm blown away, uh, including one, sorry, it's a cell phone, <laughs> including one, um, who didn't feel that my pregnant heroine could be having sex with the hero in the epilogue. This is from the same book, Naked Edge, because doing so would damage the fetus. And of course that's not true. Um, and, um, I tried to explain that and I found it very strange that I was having to explain that, um, to somebody. So you're Dr. Pam now. Yeah. So then all of a sudden I'm Dr. Pam and trying to explain how that works exactly. That's that's really funny. Um, so, on a personal note, I noticed that you're a fellow Rush fan. And sadly, oh yes, Neil. We're recording. Yeah, we're recording in January 2020, and earlier this month, drummer and lyricist Neil Peart died after a battle with cancer. So, I was wondering if you wanted to reflect on their music, and then a particular question: Do you do you integrate music into your writing? In other words, can you listen to music while you write, or do you try to, or do you have to have silence while you write? I'll start with the last one first. Um, I do listen to music while I write. I make a I make a playlist for every book, and a lot of the music is instrumental. Like for example, parts of the soundtrack to the Terminator, or um, something like that, um, to to just kind of set the tone in my head. And when you listen to the same playlist over and over and over again, it's kind of like a Pavlov's dog thing where you're instantly or more, let's say more quickly in the mindset of the, um, of the story. You get there faster. Uh, or I do with uh, a playlist. That's really um, funny. You should publish, you should publish that so that people can listen to the music when they're reading it. <laughs> Actually I do in my, in my Facebook groups, I do publish. Here's the, here's the playlist for here's or I call them the soundtrack, the soundtrack for unlawful contact or whatever the book is. And, um, uh, and rush. Oh gosh. What can I say about rush? I was introduced to their, to their music. Um, and when I was 14 and I loved them and I brought them home to my family and, um, my siblings loved them. And so something that we share and we kind of span the political spectrum is our love of Rush. And of course, Neil Peart's lyrics were so intelligent, always. These were never lyrics that were created by using a rhyming dictionary, for example. Uh, And so they were just, they really were, Rush was really the soundtrack of, of, not just my life, but my siblings' lives. And so I, we actually went together to their last concert in Denver. And I remember hearing that they were, that, you know, Neil was retiring, the band was retiring, they wouldn't perform. And I kept saying, oh, well, they might, you know, the typical thing that happens is the band says they're retiring and then they run out of money. And then suddenly there's five years later, there's another concert tour. Because none of us, of course, knew that Neil Parrott was ill. 
and uh, terminally ill. And so it was heartbreaking when he died for all of us. We basically spent part of the day online with each other, trading songs and talking about it and crying in my adult brothers in tears over this along with me. And there are times when I think that, um, that, uh, I don't know that I would have been successful in my life or as successful in my life had it not been for um, Rush. And now this will maybe sound a little off the deep end, but um, I kind of live my life, if you will, personally for myself in kind of a libertarian mode where I try to take responsibility for as much as I can for myself. I treat other people differently. I don't have that expectation necessarily of other people, but I have that expectation for myself. And I think that probably in part came from their music, but there was that song, something for nothing. I'm sure you know of it. And um, I would write part of the lyrics on every notebook I had during junior high and high school. And the part that I wrote down is what I call the rules. And the rules are, what you own is your own kingdom. What you do is your own glory. What you love is your own power. What you live is your own story. And I just always wrote that down. And it may sound completely batty, but I really believe that that helped give me the determination to be what I am today, to be a writer. There are only 1,000 to 1,500 authors in the United States who make their entire living off fiction. And I am one of them. And so I just feel like there's a, there's a power in taking control of your own and taking responsibility for yourself, your actions, your every day that, that impels you to try harder. And there's that other song, uh, Losing It. Some are born to move the world, to live their fantasies. The rest of us just dream about the things we'd like to be. And I was like, nope, damn it. I am going to move the world somehow. I'm going to do that. And that was me as a teenager. So maybe that was teenage hubris, but um, that was, that has been very real for me. Well, that seems like a great place to wrap it up. Did I miss anything important? I don't think so. It's great. It's been great talking to you. It's been a long time and I'm grateful that you thought of me for your podcast. I hope your listeners who might not be interested in romantic fiction or have thought about any of this at all um, might have found it at least interesting. Yeah, I think, yeah. Like I said, I would recommend that people who have never given it a try do so. And uh, I think there's no better place to start than Pamela Clare. So uh, thank you so much. So yeah, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you. Take care. This has been the Self and Society Podcast. Our guest today has been romance novelist Pamela Clare. For more, please see ariarmstrong.com.